Welcome to Oak Hill. I see some fresh faces here this morning, so welcome. Good to have you guys. Uh, you have arrived on a very interesting Sunday. We are, uh, we are in an uh, expository uh, series in the Gospel of John, and we are making a major transition uh, this morning within the Gospel of John. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're just going to jump in. We're going to John chapter, not six, but seven. I know, right? We were in six for quite a while, but we are in John chapter seven. We're just going to jump right in to the text this morning. Just so that you know, today's message is all about laying the groundwork for what's to come in the rest of this chapter. So chapter seven being a major transition point, if you've been at Oak Hill, you know what this means. I have a plethora of information to share with you about this historical moment, and that means, guess what? Maps. Maps and photos. So look, if you're new and you're like, what's going on right now? I apologize in advance. I'm a map nerd. I'm a history nerd. But I really hope that this is going to build you up in the Lord this morning, and it's going to set the stage for the next few weeks as we work through really a fantastic chapter in John's gospel. So John chapter 7. Today we're going to read the first 13 verses. Then we're going to go back and talk about some context and, and set the stage for what's coming next. All right, John 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking or traveling in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk or travel in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths or tabernacles, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 is our key for this morning. For not even his brothers were believing in him. They didn't believe in him. Verse 6, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed or remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. All right, let that set the stage. Get your mouth ready to go for what's coming later. We're going to break that down a little bit uh, later in the message. This transition helps us now. It actually gives us a really good opportunity to go all the way back to the beginning of the series, to go back to our original outline of the Gospel of John, just so that you can see, oh, there we go, just so that you can see where we are in this process. So we put this up on the very first Sunday, which was, Adam, how long ago? Ten years, Ten years ago? No, <laughs> wasn't that bad. Uh, but just to guide us through a, a, an understanding of how John lays out his gospel. The first 18 verses of John 1 are what we call the prologue. That is where John identifies the eternal nature of, of Jesus, right? The Word. 
The prelude, verses 19 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 1, is really the witness of John the Baptist, setting the stage for who Jesus is in terms of a testimony. And then the massive section of John is from 2 to 12. 7 puts us right in the middle of that. So that's where we are today. This is what we call the public ministry of Christ, and it's marked in John's gospel uniquely. It's marked by seven signs that John gives us that prove who Jesus is. Now, up until this point, we've gone through, here's the quiz for the morning. How many of the signs have we seen so far? Nobody will try to guess that, I know. Five of them. We've seen five of the seven. There'll be two more, and they're going to come in chapters 9 and chapter 11. And then we get into the private ministry. That's where Jesus is having these incredibly important discussions with his disciples. Then, of course, to the passion and the perfections. You see the alliteration there? How many Ps was that? A bunch of them. Okay, good. All right. So that's where we are. We're right in the middle of this this, uh, major section. Now, we have some major chronological issues to deal with this morning. This is what gets me so fired up. So look at verse 1 again. It says, After these things... Jesus was traveling in Galilee. Now, we have seen this phrase used by John before, after these things. It feels very imprecise, doesn't it? For historians, this drives us a little bit batty, like we want precision. But after these things, John used it way back in chapter 4 as he transitioned to chapter 5. And in 4 to 5, he jumped over from Jewish festival to Jewish festival. And we had to go back because in the process of that, he sort of jumped over a whole bunch of events that we had to go back and describe. We're talking about events that the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, did describe. So we filled in those gaps in John's gospel by looking at the three synoptics. Now, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again in this series. Remember that John is very selective in his material. When he wrote down his gospel, he was not interested in simply repeating what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written about 25 years earlier. That must not have made any sense to him. And looking back on it, it doesn't make sense. Why do we need a fourth gospel if it's just a repeat of what we already have? So what John appears to do then is to record certain events that A, the other three didn't record, or B, he reinforces some of the same events that lead to his ultimate outcome, which he's not shy about speaking of, right? The very end of of John's gospel, he lays out his purpose in writing down the gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs, meaning, look, I didn't write everything down here, guys. But Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe. That is the title of our series, right? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and by believing that you might have life in his name. So John is is selecting certain events and material towards that goal. So as we wrapped up chapter 6 last Sunday, we saw John describe in detail this thing we call the bread of life discourse. Very important discourse, and it's part of what makes John unique. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not describe the bread of life discourse. So we got this really great meal, right, of brand new material from John here. But now at the beginning of chapter 7, John is going to do it again, like he did back in chapter 4. He's going to leapfrog over about six months worth of Jesus' public ministry in the land of Galilee. But, good news, we have the three synoptics to fill in. 
So I want to walk you through that this morning. Before we look through these 13 verses, let's take some time to identify the events that took place between the end of chapter 6 and really verse 2 here in chapter 7. Again, verse 1 says that Jesus spent time traveling in Galilee, and while he was doing that, he was avoiding going south into Judea. Why? Because his life is under threat. He knows. He knows that if he goes south, his life is, is going to be taken from him. And it's not his time yet. But then in verse 2, we learn about this upcoming feast that's going to take place in Jerusalem. So remember, at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus talked about a Passover. Okay, a Passover that took place right before he fed these 5,000, really 20,000 or so people on the hillside of, Beth of Bethesda or Beth Bethsaida. Now, understand this about Passover. It is a spring holiday. In the Jewish lunar calendar, it's a spring holiday. It takes place in our late March or early April. Verse 2 tells us that this upcoming feast is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot, right? And so that is a fall holiday. It takes place in late September, early October. So that gives us the time frame that we're talking about. From that Passover in 6 to, the, excuse me, to this feast in chapter 7, we have a time frame of about six months. Okay, so that, that, that's exactly what we need to figure out, those six months of ministry, what took place. So here's how we're going to do this this morning. I'm going to walk you through those six months with maps. All right. By the way, you're going to find, I'm going to put the first one up. So this is the basic map that we're going to work with here. And, and you're going to see there, first of all, the references. If you want to go back and read any of these references to what I'm about to sh share, they're right there uh, on the screen. Matthew 15 to 18. Mark 7 to 9, and Luke chapter 9. All right, so looking at the map there, what do you see? First of all, we, we see a shaded area which is known as, as Galilee, correct? The blue area is the Sea of Galilee, right? Big blue body of water. What flows south out of the Sea of Galilee? The Jordan River. Okay, good. Those, those are the basics that you need to know. So the first thing that happens after chapter 6, after the Bread of Life discourse, remember, where did that take place? In Capernaum, the home base of Jesus in Galilee, in the synagogue of Capernaum, you see the red dot? Please, I, now, I promised the guys I wasn't going to turn around, but I really want to turn around. Okay, the red dot is there, because I'm too blind to see that. They, look, they're so nice. They set up a screen. I just can't see it. All right. The red dot is Capernaum on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Right after the Bread of Life discourse in chapter 6, Jesus has some visitors, Pharisees and scribes come from Jerusalem to see what is going on. They've heard all the stories about this miracle worker in Galilee, and a big controversy comes up over the issue of ceremonial washing. The Pharisees and scribes witness some of Jesus' disciples eating grain without washing their hands, and it becomes a big deal. And they're mad at their teacher, their rabbi, who is not insisting that his students uphold the traditions, the rabbinical traditions of the day. And Jesus takes the time then to rebuke them. And, and, and as we go through some of these events quickly, you'll recognize some of these passages. He rebukes them for teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. He says, you've made these things up. This is not in the scriptures, but you're teaching it as if it were doctrines. So from Capernaum then, we know that Jesus then traveled north. Boom. I turned around again. <laughs> He went north beyond the border of Galilee into the land of what we call the Syrophoenicians. 
to the area around the, the cities of Tyre and Sidon. You see that black circle, right? Now, that should, should strike you as a little bit strange. Why is Jesus going to Tyre and Sidon? What do we know about this region, and why would Jesus choose to go there? Well, we know it's the home turf, if you will, of Baal, right? Of Baal, the Canaanite god of rain, the god of fertility, known to be the god of the underworld. Remember, this is the region where wicked queen Jezebel comes from. She was a high priestess of Baal. So why, in this moment in his public ministry, does Jesus choose to go up into this very strange region, outside the boundaries of Israel? Well, one of the main things you should know about this period of Jesus' ministry is that there's a spiritual war going on behind the scenes. It's not something that's mentioned uh, overtly in the text, but if you dig into the places he's going to and the things that he's doing, you see a great spiritual war going on behind the scenes. And every decision he makes and every step that he takes is part of that battle. Never forget, as we go through this, who Jesus is. Okay? He's the creator of Genesis 1, isn't he? He's the angel of Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. Now he is the, he is the, the incarnate Yahweh himself in the flesh, walking in the world. He's come to earth proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Think about that. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is a direct threat to the rulers, principalities, and powers that govern the wicked nations of the earth. And here's the thing. They know who he is. These rulers and powers know who he is. Remember, the incarnate Son of God at this point had already met and been tempted by the serpent of Genesis 3. He had gone out into the wilderness. He had been tempted by by the devil, and he had won this great victory by resisting the devil. And the Bible tells us that he comes back from the wilderness after that confrontation. He comes back, what? In the power of the Spirit. And the holy war, so to speak, is on. And the demons, who are really the foot soldiers for these principalities and powers, they are going to become more and more agitated as time goes on. So you begin to see here a steady diet of Jesus driving out demons. Now, you're not going to find that prior to the incarnation. That is not something that happens in the Old Testament. Suddenly, Jesus is on the earth, and these demons are acting up. They're agitated, and Jesus steps in. He is able to drive out demons and even give authority to his own disciples to drive out demons in his name. So in part, Jesus came to the earth to remind these corrupt spiritual beings behind the nations of the world that he had the power and authority to drive them out, that he had the power to go into their territory and claim his chosen ones that he had the power and the authority to declare victory everywhere that he went, wherever he pleased, even if it was in their own backyard. Theologians refer to this, Jesus' movements as a polemic. His movements, a polemic, an attack, an aggressive, offensive attack on their turf against his spiritual enemies, showing that he is the one in control. And as he moves around, we read in all of the Gospels about how these demons know who he is. Mark chapter 1 says he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Luke says this, demons were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. And then in the very famous story of the healing of the possessed man who lived among the tombs in the country of the Gerasenes, Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out, and here's what the demon shouts back at him. 
What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This is all what's going, this is all new stuff. This is, a, this is the holy war, the spiritual battle that's going on. So understand this. When we read through the Gospels, we all make this mistake. We shouldn't read them as a simple travelogue. Like, oh, here's, here's, what, here's what my vacation looked like. First I went here, then I went there, then I did this, then I did that. We tend to read the Gospels that way. Well, he went here and there and all over the place. No, there's something much bigger going on here. There's a spiritual strategy in every single step, and there are spiritual skirmishes happening in every place that Jesus goes. So in light of that, back to our question, why is he up there in the land of Tyre and Sidon? Well, in part, he's declaring his authority over this region, even outside the boundaries of Israel, and right there in the heart of the land of Baal and Jezebel. And it's here that we read this amazing story. The Synoptic Gospel writers tell us this remarkable story that Jesus comes into contact with this Syrophoenician woman. She's called a Canaanite woman as well. She's a Gentile. And and because of her persistent faith, Jesus heals her daughter who had been possessed by a demon. Get this, Jesus goes into the land of Baal and drives out the enemy in his own backyard. It's a spiritual battle. So I, I brought some pictures with me as well. I can see that. Awesome. So just, just some, uh, because I'm a geek for archaeology, this is one of the more famous, you can go to uh, Tyres in Lebanon today, you can go up there and see this. That street is the most famous ruin in Tyre. It's the very street that Alexander the Great walked down in 332 BC when he conquered the city of Tyre. It's the same street that Pompey, the, the Roman general in 63 BC, went and conquered. And that arch, that Roman arch that he built, a triumphal arch, is still standing today in the city of Tyre. So it's, it's really, really cool. If you ever get a chance, you gotta go to Israel. I, I just feel like, I, no, I'm not gonna do a commercial. Next time we're able to go, you gotta go. Because you gotta feel it. You really do, and anybody who's been there, you just know you can't explain it, but you sense the weight of it all, being in the land. Okay, so there's Tyre. All right, next step. The next thing that we see in the Gospels is he travels back towards Galilee, but he goes to a particular region, the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, to a region known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis, that black circle, see it there? Now, again, this is a very interesting area. It's another seemingly strange decision on Jesus' part. Why go here? Again, this is a non-Jewish region. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. This is the old stomping grounds of the Ammonites. In the first century, the Decapolis was a, a, a confederation of 10 cities that were formed right after the Roman conquest of Palestine. So the people that live there are mostly Gentiles, and they're trying to live out a Greek or Roman way of life. So why would Jesus go there? Once again, he asserts his authority and power by going there and doing a wide variety of healings. The, the, the gospel writers tell us that the deaf hear and the blind see and the lame and the crippled walk, and Matthew reports the spiritual victory. Here's what he says, that when the people saw Jesus' power to heal, they glorified the God of Israel. Spiritual victory right in the heart of Gentile territory. Here's a picture of what of the primary city in this area is known as Gadara. And that's beautiful ruins up there that you can go see. So you can see uh, uh, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee in the distance there and also the hills to the right there. That's the, 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 the rim, what's known as the Golan Heights that surrounds the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. 
But you can go to Gadara to, uh, today and see these amazing ruins. So very interesting choice to go to the Decapolis. All right, next movement, number four. Jesus' next movement is back across the western shore of the Sea of Galilee to the town of Magdala, the hometown of Mary Magdalene. You see that yellow dot? Tell me the yellow dots up there. Yes. Praise the Lord. So in this region, Jesus has yet another confrontation with the religious authorities. Matthew and Mark tell us that a variety of men come from Jerusalem once again to try to get eyes on this, this, this itinerant preacher from Nazareth. This time, Sadducees come and Herodians come, as well as Pharisees. So all three types of religious authorities come there. And so these are powerful men who came from Jerusalem. They want to see what Jesus is doing. And when they finally get an audience with him, you might recall this story, they ask him for a sign. Give us a sign from heaven, they say. They're testing Jesus. They're, they're baiting him. They want him to make a mistake so that they can criticize him. And what does Jesus respond? Very famously, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except this. What is it? The sign of Jonah. And then Matthew says, and he left them and went away. He's like, mic drop. That's all you get. I know exactly what you're doing. You're here to bait me. I'm not going to fall for it. The only sign you will get is the sign of Jonah. Now think about that. <laughs> and he took off. So then the next thing he does is he goes, he goes back to the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida, purple dot, right? That's where he had just recently fed those 20,000 people. He returns to that spot and he heals a blind man there. But it seems that Bethsaida is just a stopping point to his ultimate destination, which is this circle, which is known as the region of Bashan. See the black circle in the upper right-hand corner? Now, Bashan, as a region, has a very dark history in terms of demonic activity. First of all, scholars who study Semitic languages believe that Bashan, the best uh, translation of it is the word serpent. So to the Israelites living in the south, Bashan was this mysterious land known as the place of the serpent. Biblically, we know it's also the home turf of a powerful Amorite king by the name of Og. No relation to Simon's family. <laughs> no relation. Og. Throughout Numbers and Deuteronomy, Og is referred to as the king of Bashan, and he is a pagan idolater. He was also, and this is where it gets interesting, according to Deuteronomy 3, Og was a giant. He was a giant, referred to as a remnant of something called the Rephaim, a clan of giants who lived in the Transjordan region. Now, there's other names in Deuteronomy and Joshua and other places given to these giant clans, most of whom lived in the land of Cana. They're called Rephaim, they're called Anakim, and most famously from Genesis 6, they're called what? The Nephilim. All these different names, these giants, okay? More on the Nephilim in just a second. But know that this race of people who lived in Bashan were viewed by the Israelites as both dangerous and demonic. But the scriptures tell us that despite their size, that, that Yahweh gave uh, Og and his army into the hands of Moses. In fact, it's the last battle that the Israelites fight before they enter into the promised land. So he goes up into Bashan. Now there's a couple places he goes to up in Bashan. The next one is he stops in a city called Caesarea Philippi. Now we know that name, right? Blue dot? Good. Now that's its Roman name, Caesarea Philippi. Okay? Philip was the, the son of Herod the Great, and he was the, 
the tetrarch or the ruler over this particular region, but because he wanted to make nice with Rome, he named it Caesar. So it became known as Caesarea Philippi, Philip giving this gift to Caesar. Its original name was Panias. And today, even if you go to Israel, it's known as Benias, right? But it was named Panias because of the pagan worship that took place there, the worship of the Greek god Pan. And it's actually much darker than that. The caves at Panias, which you can go visit today. I'll show you pictures in a second. The caves of Panias were known as a place of terror for the Israelites. They were thought to be the portal to the underworld. In fact, they were known as the gateway to the realm of the dead. Here's what they look like. Some of you guys would have been here, right? Amazing rock formations, and that cave in particular was known as the gateway to the realm of the dead. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi in this spot with his disciples, this is the site of his very famous interaction with the disciples in Matthew 16. You'll recognize this. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say? And who, who, who speaks up? Good old Peter. Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now listen to Jesus' response and look at the picture. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Right in the shadow of the cave of Panias. Now Jesus is a master of language. We know this, right? And he uses the natural world, the things around him and his disciples to make his points, to draw word pictures you look at that, and first of all, you see the rock formation, and then you see the gates of hell, the very thing that the Israelites believed about this particular cave at Panias. So the message is, don't be afraid. My authority and power extend beyond Israel, even up here, even to the very heart of the enemy's territory, to the very gates of hell. Amazing stuff. Now, his final destination from Caesarea Philippi, or ultimately he's going to a place called Mount Hermon, Right? But first, in order to get there, he's got, to, he's got to pass through the city of Dan. That was the most, if you've been to Dan, some of you have been there with me, you've got to go through Dan to get further north. He would have gone through Dan. Now, why, what's important about Dan? What do we know about Dan from the divided kingdom period? Only that this is the very site where wicked King Jeroboam built a false cultish worship, worship site and in that process led the people of the northern kingdom astray, straight into judgment. He caused them to, to stumble and to worship, of all things, and this just blows my mind, a golden calf. Like, we can't figure out how not to repeat that mistake. Golden calf worship, the worship of which was sa is said to have been the worship of Shadim, which is the Hebrew word for demons. So once again, Jesus walks through Dan, right through the heart of the enemy's territory, and then he comes to this mountain known as Hermon. See the green triangle up there? This is likely the spot of the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's a really such an important moment in the gospel narratives. Historically, Mount Hermon is another demonic stronghold. In Jesus' day, there was a magnificent temple built on this mountain to Zeus, to worship the, the Greek god Zeus. In fact, archaeology has revealed 
more than 20 pagan temples built in and around Mount Hermon. Some of them to ancient Phoenician gods and Canaanite gods, some of which required even child sacrifice. So this is a demonic place. More interestingly, Jewish tradition and several good intertestamental sources, including the book of Enoch, say that it's here on Mount Hermon that the sons of God or the watchers of Genesis 6 descended to earth to reproduce with human women producing this quasi-divine race of beings we know, we know as the Nephilim. That this is the site where that took place. This is scripturally the most hideous sin that you can imagine. This is the worst. And as I said, later in Deuteronomy and Joshua, they're referred to as not just the Nephilim, but the Rephaim and the Anakim, or the sons of Anak. And according to Joshua 11.22, some of these giants, although many of them were, were defeated in the invasion of the land of Canaan, some of them escaped and trickled into the various Philistine cities. And of course, one of those giants is going to show up later in the form of a man named Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. So you see this, you see this from the Nephilim, you see all these different points of these giant clans in the land of Canaan, uh, and it ends up with Goliath. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, this is just weird, and it is, it's just an Old Testament concept, can I just tell you that both Peter and Jude refer to this story? Now, it's a little bit cryptic, but they talk about angels who went outside the proper, their proper domain, crossed the boundaries, and did things which were so despicable that God had to punish them on the spot and lock them in pits of darkness. And that's all we're told, and that's probably all we can handle. But this is a really amazing story. So let me give you a picture of Mount Hermon. It's a very imposing mountain, 7,000 feet in elevation. Um, you can actually ski there. Can you imagine that? There is, there is snow most of the year, and it's that snow that runs off that feeds into the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the sources of the Sea of Galilee. So now consider this. If this is the location of that unspeakable demonic sin, Jesus selects that very place for the transfiguration. This is a polemic. This is an attack against his spiritual enemies. That he takes his inner circle of Peter, James, and John up to the top. The text says a high mountain. This is the highest mountain you'll find. To a high mountain in the heart of Satan's territory. And there he transfigures before his inner circle. He, in some sense, unzips. That's my only way I can think of it. Unzips this distinction between the physical world and the spiritual world. And his disciples were able to see him interact with dead guys, right? With Moses and Elijah to interact. They see Jesus in his actual glory. I mean, it's a mind-blowing story, right? Guys, we need to start reading the Bible supernaturally as it's written. There's a lot of things in here that are hard to understand, but we need to read it supernaturally because there's some wild stuff in here. So the transfiguration is amazing. Now, all three synoptic gospel writers then report that the next day, Jesus and these three guys, they come down, the, down from the mountain and there's a multitude of people waiting for them at the base of, of Mount Hermon. And what does Jesus do? He drives out a demon. Of course he does. It's exactly what happens there. And this one is very stubborn. In fact, after this, this young, uh, young boy has the demon uh, driven out, the disciples say to them, We've already tried to drive that demon out, and we couldn't do it. And what does Jesus say? This is a tough one. He said, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. That takes place at the base of Mount Hermon 
in the heart of the enemy's territory. So the question in all of this is, was Jesus putting the hostile powers on notice by selecting that particular location to transfigure before his inner circle? And if the answer is yes, and I think it is, then consider this. What happens next after the transfiguration? Jesus begins, he comes back to Galilee, and he begins going to Jerusalem, and the end is near. It's as if he's thrown down the gauntlet, and he's shown the, the powers of darkness who he is in all of his glory, and now he's going to the cross because that's the ultimate site of victory, right? Again, the enemy knows who he is. They're on notice that the kingdom of God is at hand. They've seen what he can do. Here's the thing, though. They still don't understand God's full plan. It's, it's hidden from them. They still don't understand. They can't fathom what God is going to do with his one and only son. The question is, has Jesus baited them? Has he set a trap for them? Because he is going to go to Jerusalem. He is going to drink the full cup of suffering and death that the Father has planned for him. And the demonic powers will think that they have a victory by putting the Son of God to death. And that's when the trap is sprung. Because we know actually, that actually the opposite is true. The cross becomes the scene of those spiritual powers' ultimate downfall and defeat. It's where the trap gets sprung on them. So all of this is happening six months. Let me, let me show you the, the circles again. Why does Jesus go to these places? Why not just hang out in Galilee among the Jews? Why does he go to the land of Tyre and Sidon? Why go to Bashan? Why go to the Decapolis? All of these places, the purposes of the Lord and the spiritual battle that was taking place are things that we need to take notice of when we begin to plot the story of the gospel. Amen? All right. All those things happened in six months. How did I do? That wasn't bad. Let's go back to John 7. I told you we'd get there. All right. Jesus has brothers? Okay. John has already introduced us to Jesus' family, right? Back in chapter 2, we got to know Mary a whole bunch more, right? She's, she is the sort of the, the party planner at the, the wedding feast in Cana. John also mentions that Jesus' brothers were at that wedding as well. Now we learn more about them. And by the way, they're half-brothers, right? Right? Because obviously the virgin birth of Jesus came about without any help from Joseph. Right? Okay, we affirm that. Okay, I'm just checking. I mean, I don't want to get awkward, but, but yeah, Joseph wasn't involved. But that wasn't true of the rest of his family, right? The, the, the rest of his brothers and sisters are fully fleshed, full-blooded children of Joseph and Mary. And they're mentioned by name in Matthew 13. We have their names. There's James, and there's Joseph, and there's Simon, and yes, there's Judas. Now, we have to be careful. That's, that's a Greek name. It's Judah in Hebrew, right? But Judas, okay, and, and it was a common name in first century Israel, so that's not surprising. And then Matthew also mentioned sisters, plural, which tells us that Joseph and Mary were quite fruitful after, after she had Jesus, which is, which is good and godly. And by the way, that's something that, that, what's the best way to say it, annoys our Roman Catholic friends, right? Because Roman Catholic doctrine holds as a tradition of men, not a scriptural truth, but a tradition of, of the teaching of the Catholic Church that Mary remained a perpetual virgin after giving birth to Jesus. It's absolutely unsustainable based on the New Testament text, but still they grip onto that with all their being. 
But what's so interesting here in John 7 is that at this point in the gospel narrative, while Jesus is still physically alive on the earth, none of his siblings believe in him. Now, I don't know what that says about their childhood, and I don't want to speculate, but it's interesting. None of them yet believe. In fact, John's very specific. They don't believe, even though, and this is interesting, uh, even though by the time that John is actually writing down his gospel, which was about 50 years after the events took place, he now knows that they became believers. In fact, some of them became very important believers. But at this point, they don't believe, right? So and it's not surprising that the thing that changes them from unbelievers to believers is, is what single event? The resurrection. There's something about seeing, <laughs> seeing a man rise from the dead that will change your life, right? It's the resurrection that does that. James, in particular, becomes James the just. By all accounts, James is a, becomes a spiritual force to be reckoned with. He is the man, according to Acts 15, who plays the most authoritative role at the Jerusalem council while Peter and Paul are present. That tells you how, how impressive a man James became, that became. While Peter and Paul are present, he has the authoritative voice at the council. James goes on to be the faithful pastor shepherd of the early church in Jerusalem and, of course, wrote the earliest New Testament writing we have, the book of James. That's not a bad resume, right? Now, we don't know much about Joseph or Simon or their sisters, but Judas is thought to be the author of the New Testament book known as Jude. Can you understand why he went by Jude and not Judas? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so they became believers later on, but at this point they're not. Now, let me quickly answer three really important questions that come out of this text. We're going to go through them quickly here. Here's the first question we want to ask. By going to Jerusalem, what was Jesus walking into? This is important. This is his last trip to Jerusalem, right? He's going to die. All these things happen out there in all these different places, but now, the transfiguration, but now he has turned his face, set his face towards Jerusalem for the last time. What is he walking into? Look at verse 11 again. John 7, 11. So the Jews were seeking him. They were looking for him at the feast. And they were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. In other words, he deceives the people, some were saying. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So here's the thing, guys. In studying scripture and reading history, we know that nearly all of the religious power and authority in the land of Israel lay in the south, in Judea, okay? in, in Jerusalem in particular. That's where the Sadducees were rooted, in the temple courts. And the Herodians were there. And the most prominent Pharisees as well. And of course, Jerusalem is the seat of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court of that day, the most authoritative ruling body the Jews had. So as we read here in John 7, Jesus is walking into an ambush set by the most powerful people in the entire country at the Feast of Tabernacles that year. There are spies everywhere, and they're looking for him. And so they say, where is he? And make no mistake, the big shots... In Jerusalem, they want him dead. By this time, they want him dead. Listen, they were annoyed by Jesus when he came into the temple courts and he drove out the money changers. That was, that was an affront to them. It was annoying. But what really got them was when they witnessed him healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda a year earlier. And we covered this story back in chapter 5. That's what really got people upset. 
Jesus did two things that day that set everybody's hair on fire. And you need to understand the culture of what's going on. Number one, he performed this miracle right under the nose of these authorities in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus did it. We talked about it. He did it intentionally. He was sparking this, this conflict. He did it right in their seat of power. They didn't like that. But number two, he did this miracle on a Sabbath. That really got to them. They said, who is this man to come in and do this thing and reject all of our traditions, disobey us completely? And there were religious leaders in Jerusalem with, with enough clout to, to, to seize Jesus and have him put to death. And he knows that to be, to be true. So in their minds, this upstart from Galilee was not only showing them up on their home field, but he was thumbing his nose at their authority in Judea itself. They want him dead. Now, what about the crowd? Well, it's more complicated here, right? John tells us that, that Jesus is on, the, the concept of Jesus, who he is, is on the tip of everybody's tongue. You can imagine everybody in Israel is talking about this guy, but not openly. They can't speak openly about him for fear of antagonizing the wrong people. If you were heard in those days, maybe approving of Jesus' teaching or, 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 or affirming his miracles, it's possible that some powerful man uh, might cause you to suffer consequences. They might ban you from the temple courts. They could ban you from the synagogue. They could basically ruin your social and religious life completely. So any discussions about Jesus had to be done in whispers, and that's what John's re re reporting here. Not openly, but being whispered in the streets of Jerusalem. Even then, John says that the crowd is split on him. Some are like, he's a good man. And who can argue with miracles, right? Feeding people, healing people. Of course, some thought he was a good man. But others strongly disagreed. Listen, this is amazing. They, they thought he was a dangerous deceiver. They would have called him an extremist in that day. No respect for their traditions. Uh, they, they would have called him, because of where he's from, a teacher who was simply taking advantage of a whole bunch of uneducated people. He's up there in the backwater of Galilee fooling people, but he can't come down to Judea and fool us. And so they believe he's an extremist and a deceiver. Second question. So what was the motivation of these brothers when they said, hey, you should go to the feast in Jerusalem? What motivated them? Look at verse 2 again. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths or tabernacles was near. Therefore his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Let me try to give you some plain language on this. This is from the NIV. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Okay? If you do these things, or since you do these miracles, show yourself to the world, they say. Where, where are they coming from? They're like, go to Judea, Jesus. If you want to prove yourself, look, you've got to get a bigger platform. At some point, you're going to have to go down south and mix it up with the big boys. This is, this is akin to the, the classic story of the person who's a star in some backwater town in America, and so they look at him and say, yeah, but could you make it in New York City? <laughs> or could you make it in L.A., right? Could you get to the big city and impress people? That's what's going on here. By the way, it's also possible that they had become aware that just recently Jesus lost most of his congregation. Remember that in chapter 6? Really hard teaching, and most of them walked away. So they're thinking very pragmatically. They're like, look, Jesus, you lost so many people. But if you go to the festival in Jerusalem, 
there will be enormous crowds there. You can replenish your congregation. That could be in their minds as well. This is how worldly people think. This is how unbelievers think, very pragmatically, not spiritually. This is how they view issues of fame and popularity and timing. But look what John calls it in verse 5. He calls it unbelief. That's, a, that's a maybe surprising and shocking statement. They have this purely pragmatic view on it. Hey, go down there and get popular. John says, is, that's just unbelief. That is worldly thinking. Now, remember, the cultural expectation of the Messiah in that day was that when he arrived, he would come with great fanfare. It would be public and open, and it wouldn't be in Bashan, or it wouldn't be in Tyre and Sidon. It'd be right there in Jerusalem. So what's implied here is that Jesus' brothers actually believe he can do miracles. They're, not de- they're like the rest of the crowds in Galilee. They're, in that, they're curious. Remember we talked last week? They're part of the curious crowd. They believe that their brother can actually do miracles, but they don't believe he's Messiah. They don't believe he's the son of God. So they're like all the other people in the crowd, curious. And they're interested in maybe what else can he do? Maybe he can go down to Jerusalem and do something really big. So you know, Jesus, get going, man. Come on, let's make this happen. Maybe something is working in there as well as, hey, I'm his brother, right? So if you become famous, maybe I can say, I can tag along. I can get glory for myself. They're thinking in worldly terms for now. All right, last question. What about time? Let's talk about time. We're going to wrap up with this. How does God view time? Side question here. Did Jesus lie in this passage? Anybody else pick that up when we're reading it? They're like, whoa, wait, hang on a second. Did he tell a lie? We'll get to that. Look at verse 6. So Jesus said to his brothers, my time's not yet here, but your time, your time is always opportune. The NIV says, for you, any time will do. I wonder how they responded to that. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He's like, look, you guys, you don't confront the world at all. They don't hate, the world loves you. So you don't have a problem. Go whenever you want. The world isn't gonna think one way or the other, but I'm in a different situation. So he says in verse 8, go ahead, go up to the feast yourselves. I don't go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things, he stayed or remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly or openly, but as in secret. So the wording here, the language here is important. The word that John uses here for time is not the word you might expect, chronos, which is what we get our word chronology from. In this passage, he uses a Greek word, kairos, which does refer to time, but not in a chronological sense. Kairos refers to what is the most appropriate, the most appropriate moment or opportunity. What's the best time to decide to do something? That's the word that's being used here. And Jesus seems to imply here that there are two different types of kairos that govern the affairs of man. There's the way God sees it and the way natural man sees it. For Jesus, and by extension, you and I, right, his followers, there's a very unique kind of time by which we're supposed to live. Now, if I've lost you this morning and you're tired from history and maps, this is application time, so so wake up. We are supposed to live by a very unique kind of time, kairos. So as we seek first the kingdom of God, we're to make the most of every opportunity by living out the will of our Father in heaven. How do we do that? We're to be guided by the principles of God's word. We're to be guided by prayer and petition. 
We're to be guided by biblical wisdom, applying the truth of God's word to each and every choice and decision that we make. This is what Paul stresses in Ephesians, right? Ephesians 5, be careful how you walk. Man, what a great statement that is. Be careful. Think carefully about your choices and your decisions. Don't act rashly. Don't be impatient. Be careful. Think carefully about every choice and decision you make. He goes on. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your kairos, because the days are evil. That's true, right? So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that's a very different perspective than the way natural man sees time. The person who lives apart from Christ, for them, any time will do. Any time's a good time. Why? Because I'm only, I'm only driven by my desires. So any time will do. Because I spend my time living for now without any sense of eternal significance. So Jesus' brothers are part of that crowd. They could go up to Jerusalem any time because eternally speaking, it just didn't matter. That's sad, isn't it? Eternally speaking, it didn't matter if they went up at this hour or that hour or they went tomorrow because they're unbelievers. They could go whenever because they were living according to the traditions of men, right? When the, you know, the, the priests say you need to go and by their own desires. They were not living according to God's will. And so Christian, honest question, do your choices and the way you spend your time, are they at all different from the culture around us? Are the choices that you make, the decisions that you make related to how, you're spend, how you spend your time, are they different from the world? Are they, are they set apart from the world? Would people look at your choices and decisions and say, that person's unusual? Those are key questions. There's a famous story, uh, and I'll tell it quickly, about a devout Christian named William Gladstone. He was the prime minister in England in the late 19th century. And according to this story, one day a young man approached him and he was looking for career advice. And he went up there and he said, Prime Minister, I think I want to go study law. And the Prime Minister said to him, great, what then? He said, well, then I'd like to gain entrance to the Bar of England. He said, yeah, good. What then? Well, then, sir, I hope to secure a seat in Parliament in the House of Lords. He said, yes, young man, that's good. But what then? He said, well, then I hope to do great things for Britain. He says, of course, that's great. But what then? Well, then, sir, I suppose I hope at some point to retire and live a quiet life somewhere. He said, okay, but what then? He said, well, sir, I suppose I'll die. And he said, well, that's true, young man. But what then? Now the poor kid was flustered, the story goes. He says, well, I never thought any further than that, sir. Gladstone looked him in the eye and said sternly, young man, you are a fool. Go home and think life through. The point is, a Christian sees his or her time differently than the world. If all we do is plan and choose and decide in a purely temporal sense, then we're not thinking life through. Not really what matters, right? Not the true life that matters, eternal life. So Jesus says to his brother, look, I'm on a different schedule than you guys. I'm on my father's schedule. I'll go to Jerusalem when he tells me. As for you, go ahead and go. For you, your timing doesn't matter. Now, historically, there's been controversy there between verses 8 and 10. Does Jesus tell a lie here? First, he says, I'm not going to the feast. John confirms that he stays in Galilee a little while longer. But then in verse 10, Jesus decides he will go to the feast. Did he lie? Thank you. Somebody said no. 
Man, no, of course not. The same principle applies here regarding time. Jesus is operating with a completely different principle in mind. He refused to go to Jerusalem with his brothers in the way they were going. He refused to go to Jerusalem with the motivation behind their going. That's why he says no to them in the way they're going and the motivation for going. In other words, he wasn't operating based on the opinions of other men. He wasn't operating based on religious tradition. He's operating on the same principle that guided him every day of his life on the earth, the Father's will, period. That's it. And it appears that within a very short amount of time, his brothers leave and the Father does prompt Jesus to get up and go to Jerusalem, but again, not in the same way as everybody else and not for the same reason. In fact, Jesus is gonna go to Jerusalem for the polar opposite reason that his brothers think he should go for. They think he should go what? To get a following, he goes to be rejected and to be put to death. So that tells you right there the stark difference in the ways his brothers were thinking versus him. Now, next Sunday, we're going to put ourselves in the sandals of the crowd there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're going to dig into this amazing back-and-forth discourse that takes place throughout the rest of chapter 7. But know this, when Jesus arrives, and he arrives sort of covertly, right, in secret, when he arrives, he doesn't come with miracles. He's not there to show off. He's not there to perform like a circus monkey for these folks. He comes with teaching and with rebuke. That will be interesting. In the meantime, here is your assignment for this week. I want you to think about time. Do some self-examination on how you view your time. Are your choices driven by those three things I mentioned? By God's word, by prayer and petition, and by applying biblical wisdom? Or are your choices and decisions in the way you spend time purely temporal? Purely pragmatic? Those are really important questions. Guys, life is short. Time is short. Make the most of every opportunity. Here's some more questions, and you can take a picture of it, or you can ask me about it later. Do you live with eternity in mind? What are your priorities? Do you, honest question, do you have non-negotiables in your life where you're like, you know what? This is number one. I will not say no. Non-negotiables. No, I, I don't blow this off for anything. This is absolutely critical to my life with Jesus, my walk with him. If you don't have any non-negotiables, we should talk. Because you should. What are your priorities? How do you make these choices and decisions? Do you do it with wise counsel? Do you just depend on what works for your schedule or what makes you happy? What pleases you? What's comfortable for you? These are hard ones, right? How might you be wasting time right now? Time that God has given you. Oh, there's so much we... I'm just, that's just going to be a little bit of fodder for, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but these are really important questions about how we view time, amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. God, even as we set up the rest of this chapter, Lord, help us to remember all of this amazing background, what you have shown us through the life of Jesus, how he was so willing, God, to do exactly as you instructed, how he was willing to go outside the boundaries of Israel to walk in the territory of a spiritual enemy, Lord, and to claim victory, how he was willing to go to Jerusalem, not to be loved, but to be rejected. So many lessons that we can learn from our master. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the word.
God, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that as we face this week, even tonight, tomorrow morning, that we will think more carefully, that we will think about walking carefully in the choices and decisions we make. Lord, in every moment that you give us, we know it's a blessing from your hand. Help us to be wise in the way we use it. For your glory and our good, we pray. Amen.